0: Welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is
1: episode 14, Solaris from 2002. I'm Mike Manzi.
2: I'm Tobin Addington.
1: And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this is yet another remake for Soderbergh. He did Ocean's Eleven. Traffic was kind of a remake. He's on a little bit of a kick here. I've never seen this movie. I never saw the original, but I like this movie. That's my
0: take on it. This was my second viewing of this version, and a few years back I watched the original for the very first time. Because being a big sci-fi fan, I've just—it's been on my list forever. And I like both versions. This one is just way easier to understand. <laughs> um, we'll get into it—reasons why and things. But I also
2: quite enjoyed rewatching this movie. Wow! Wow! I guess that makes me a little bit of the dissenter. You know, as is my. Want on these podcasts? I have a confession to make, which is that I didn't start falling asleep in movies until I got to film school. Never in my I life until you, until you started watching this movie. <laughs> no, I'm getting there. Um, we were, you know, up so late making movies and watching movies that occasionally in class I would pass out in the middle of watching a movie and then wake up partway through. This movie came out, I think, it was Thanksgiving weekend, two thousand two, and I went with with some friends. It was a packed theater in New York. There was a guy I didn't know sitting on one side of me. My friend was on the other side of me and I lasted about Eight shots into the movie, and then just <laughs> passed out. And I came to a couple more times in the course of the movie. So I went to this movie on opening weekend, but I hadn't really truly seen it until this watching. And um, I don't care for it a lot, and not as much as you guys do which I guess we'll we'll get into. But so I guess technically it's my first time watching it, although I did buy a ticket way back in two thousand two. <laughs>
0: Did you ever see the original or read the book or any of that? I've never read the book, but...
2: I've not read the book. I, I know the orig- I saw the original in film school.
0: Did you fall asleep during that? I didn't. Because I fell asleep watching it and sort of had to... It's a tougher... It's yeah. way tougher. Like It's just like this really dense philosophical meditation on life out in space, which they touch upon in this, but I'm actually grateful how Soderbergh makes this version his own and way more accessible for like a general audience.
1: Steven Soderbergh is apparently quoted as saying, if you don't like the first 10 minutes of this movie, you might as well leave, <laughs> which I think is pretty, pretty fair. Yeah. And this is also one, only one of only three movies that came out in 2002 that got an F- cinema score from audiences. Wow. So I think it was, it was mismarketed and we'll get into that in a little bit yeah. in terms of like box office and stuff that wasn't successful at all. But I don't know how it was marketed, but it's kind of like, I compare it to this year's personal shopper. It's kind of like a ghost story. Like it's this weird love story sort of. It just happens to take place in space, which I liked it because I was like, I didn't know what to expect, but like, you know, the DVD cover has. Clooney's face in a space suit and I'm just like oh this is going to be like a type of movie and I'm like oh no it's not that at all it's like about loss and love and death and ghosts and memory and I don't know it just touched on a lot of things I didn't expect it to touch on I was surprised
0: Yeah, I didn't pick up on that ghost thing until you mentioned it, which I like. I think that actually makes me like the movie a little more. It it is sort of shot and structured, maybe somewhat like a haunted house Mm -hmm. uh, story in a lot of ways. And, And I also liked it because, you know, one of the central themes seems to be something Soderbergh's familiar with a lot. It comes around a lot is communication, you know, and like the whole movie, they've discovered this... I don't know, entity, this thing. It looks kind of like a cross between a planet and a sun, but it's like this thing in space and they think it's trying to communicate with it or they're trying to figure out what it is. And it's just very interesting how they try to break down the walls of communication with each
1: other and this thing and how all of that like runs its course. So what didn't you like about it, Tobin? Like specifically, I mean, like it's very slow. Well, I guess you fell asleep eight shots in. So, I mean, it's not like you you were awake very
2: long, my distinct memory of the – my only distinct memory of watching it the first time was like three shots in saying, this is a master class in editing. I thought it was – I thought those first few cuts were pristine. And then when I learned later that he was cutting it himself, I was even more impressed. I mean, it, there's a precision to when those cuts come that's like Walter Murch level – I, brilliant, I think so, so good. and that continues through the movie. I think it's beautifully cut. The slowness is not a barrier to entry for me. I can I can usually take a pretty a movie with a with a slow metabolism. I think for me it's that I think, and I love George Clooney, but I think he's miscast here. I think that this movie needed someone who could present a little more depth emotionally. I don't believe the scene where this apparition, what do they call him? His visitor shows up where Natasha shows up the first time. And he like has that watery eye moment where he's like uh, trying to figure out what's going on. I don't buy it. I, I, I never really felt their emotional connection. And I think that, makes the whole movie feel more clinical to me feel more like a, a philosophical exercise and intellectual exercise that's sort of posing as an emotional exercise and since so since i'm since i am emotionally distanced from the movie i'm not on any kind of a emotional journey with it that's my problem with it
1: well i think the movie is a really philosophical i mean he quotes Nietzsche a lot and there's a lot of like this so he just sort of asks philosophical questions just to throw them out there because nobody really answers them it's sort of especially toward the end it gets sort of like that do you either of you know who Soderbergh wanted to be the star of this no. who turned it down it's one guy who makes a movie every like nine years just retired from acting yes Lewis. oh well that oh, would have been, been excellent. So good Yeah, that's
0: once you hear that, I totally agree now with Tobin that Clooney seems a bit miscast. Like, I get their relationship over time by the end of the film. I buy into it. And by the last shot, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like Clooney sort of earned the performance. But you're right. Like, I feel like when he gets to the space station, he's more grief stricken about seeing his dead friend in a body bag than when his dead wife appears (laughs) out of his dreams, you know, and sees her. Like, that those are there are a few problems with his performance, you're right. But yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis would have blown this out of the water. God,
2: that would have been so, so good. That's exactly what this movie needed. Because what happened was, because this is in the
1: era where they had the studio together, the production studio, and so because Soderbergh was optioning this or whatever, he had to basically run it by Clooney, and Clooney sent him a letter... There's something about like being personal or impersonal. I I couldn't really follow what IMDB was saying, so I didn't write it down. Clooney really wanted to be in it, and so he wrote him a letter and then Daniel Day Lewis said no, so he went in this. I didn't think too critically about their relationship. I know that's sort of a central thing, but like I like both of them so much. I really like her. Like she was one of the more grounded sort of emotional parts of Californication, a show that doesn't have much of either of that kind of stuff. Or it's just David Duchovny doing, you know, living out his id lifestyle. But I really like her from that. I really like Clooney from a lot of stuff. This is, I guess, his third thing with Soderbergh, right? And very different, not flashy at all movie, like the last two, but I really like both of them. So I just sort of like them together. I think for me, what might do it is I buy
0: him as the shrink, but I have trouble buying him in space. Like, yeah. That That's sort of where it goes for me. Is like, I understand he's not necessarily supposed to be there and space travel at, at this point in the future is just sort of like airplane travel. But even still, he's in gravity for like a few minutes. Spoiler alert for gravity. Yeah, he's in space in that movie. But I don't know, for some reason, it was a, an adjustment for me to be like Clooney in space. Okay.
2: I guess you have to have an actor of Clooney's bankability in order to make this. I mean... You know, trying to imagine pitching this as a project. I want to re- remake a, what, 1972 Russian, like, inscrutable philosophical Russian film. You're, you're going to need a bankable name actor. Correct me if I'm wrong, Joey, you've probably done more research into this. But as I understand it, um, James Cameron had the rights to it and was going to make it.
1: And yeah, he was he was going to direct it, but he got too busy, so he just produced it instead.
0: Yeah, and he's on the audio commentary too with Soderbergh chatting this movie up. Now
2: I did listen to pieces of that again just to see how, and I liked that so much better than the, than the process of watching the movie. Just like with, with Full Frontal, again just because I was less less connected to it. And I should say I watched the whole movie, then went back and listened to some scenes with their commentary. And they have a nice, it's a nice commentary. It makes me appreciate the movie in all kinds of different ways. But but imagining the imagining the um, James Cameron version of this movie is a wild thought experiment.
1: It'd be completely different, yeah.
2: right? Because right. like this is just this is a story that takes place in space, but like the space is an afterthought. Like it's just a
1: drama. Whereas with that, there'd be some like crazy shit going on. There'd be a loss
0: of subtlety for sure, right? Everything would just hit you over the head really hard. You know, there's. Up- Opportunities for things where you're like, oh, there could have been this could be way scarier, or he would have needed to go outside the space station at some point, right? And like that's maybe where James Cameron could have taken it. And while those those would have been cool places for the movie to go, you know, it's just not necessarily necessary to tell the story that they need to tell or that they wanted to tell. Which you're right, Joey, is more of just this straight laced drama that happens to take place on a space station in deep space next to like this weird eternal entity of some kind.
1: In comparison to the original, which I still have never seen, this is like an hour shorter. So I can't imagine there'd be so much more that you could touch on, and sort of go into. But I guess this—he wanted to make it more approachable. When Soderbergh wrote the screenplay, he used—it wasn't really a remake as much as another version of the novel. And so he took the novel and he took the screenplay from 1972. There's also apparently like a 1968 Russian version or something from for made for TV that like he just sort of did his own thing to. What's really super weird is that the guy who wrote the book never saw the movie, but he's like, oh, they did so much to the relationship. Like I didn't like. It. But but like, he didn't see the movie before he died, so I don't know what that's all about. But I guess that maybe has something to do with the marketing of it, that it was marketed sort of as like a love story, which it's not at all, and the movie cost $47 million to make and then worldwide made back $30 million. Lost a lot of money, even though you have a bankable star in there, and you have a director who's come off a run of successful things. I guess it's just really terrible marketing, or misguided marketing, that sort of led to bad word of mouth, which led to nobody going to see it.
2: And then you falling asleep. Yeah. I think forty seven million is too much to spend on this movie. I don't know where it is. Where did it go? Salaries, I'm sure. I bet I bet they were all well paid. And it
0: actually looks really nice and slick and everything. And isn't this wasn't this something like completely shot on digital. And there was never a negative for this either. It was like shot and cut on a computer. No negative of this exists. I'm not I'm not positive about that, but I, I thought I heard something along those lines. So maybe pushing new technologies and making the movie behind the scenes. You know, you got James Cameron there. He loves to just spend money wherever, you know? And I'm sure Soderbergh was kind of like, we don't need this, we don't need that. And James Cameron's like, yeah, but you know, what the
2: hell, let's just use it. Maybe you have to pay Clooney extra for showing his butt. You see so much Clooney butt in this. It's amazing. I wonder if they put that in to help sell the
0: movie.
1: You yeah, know? Right. Like, so did you hear the quote-unquote drama about this? No. Is that this movie, because of those two scenes where you see his butt was rated R... And Soderbergh, like, flipped to shit and, was, and, you know, protested it to the MPAA and submitted all these evidences of, like, things on network TV that were worse than that. And they're like, all right, all right, PG-13. Like, this movie would be, like, the softest R-rated movie in history if it was rated R. Yeah, totally.
0: It's a tough one, man, because you're right, like, who is this for? You know, the original... for me. (laughs) No, no, I mean, like, we (laughs) like it, yes, but I, you know, you have a space movie with George Clooney in it, and there's no dogfights or action, they're not trying to blow anything up and rescue anybody, you know, and it's like, I, I could see the audience just being like, why would I go to this in a way? But then there's a very niche audience of sci-fi fans that love the original and love Soderbergh, and, but there's just not enough of them. <laughs> and then there were people like me at the time who was just vehemently against remakes, even if I hadn't seen the original yet, because it had just been just such a bad trend, and it continues to be a bad trend, I feel, for the most part. Ultimately, I feel like this one succeeds because Soderbergh is like, I'm not doing a shot for shot thing like Psycho or anything like that. Like he does with his his remakes, he adapts them. You know, he doesn't remake them. He takes the concept, the ideas, the characters, you know, the themes and jumbles them up and, and reapplies them in his own unique
2: way. I do like the way that first dream sequence he has before his visitor shows up when he – I think it was before – where he goes to sleep and then there's the dream sequence that turns into the flashback and then back out of it again. I, that, that's what I mean about the editing, both on a sort of micro level shot to shot but on a macro level of weaving the story together. It's just beautiful in this movie. And I, I think that that's something that if one stays awake, uh, you, you'll find, find really, 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 <laughs> really impressive. That and the score. I think um, Cliff Martinez's score is, is pretty great here. Yeah, those dream sequences
0: remind me, like when you're learning about how to like orient somebody into a scene, it's like, here's the wide shot. And then you kind of go in closer to like a middle shot and then you go even closer to like the person who's talking. And, it, and it's great in the way he establishes these dreams. It's like you see Clunia sleep and then you see Solaris and then you see the flashback and then you realize it's a dream sequence flashback and that maybe Solaris is reading his mind at that point. So, you know, he orients you into thinking different ways I feel like he visually is guiding you into a way of reading this movie with the editing. Exactly. That's really well said. Yeah.
1: Another thing I like about this movie is that it, and this is also something that like at times I sort of didn't like about the movie, but I think on a whole, I like it more is that it just doesn't answer questions. You don't really know, I don't think, I mean, unless I miss stuff, like, you don't really know what Solaris is, you don't really know, like, its full powers, like, you don't really know, I have a clear sense, like, you know what he chooses at the end of the movie, chooses not to leave, but, like, you don't really know what happens to him. Like, the first 10 or 15 minutes, you don't really know who he is or what he's doing or where he's going, and then he shows up in Jeremy Davies, most recently Jesus Christ himself on American Gods. Is there basically being Charles Manson, which apparently that's that's how he got cast. That there was like some tape of him being Charles Manson floating around Hollywood, that he would later go on to be that. But in two thousand four, but like yeah, so he got cast as that. But like he is just there and find out later, spoiler alert, that he's not a human. He's one of these you know visions or whatever. But like the whole movie, it's just like yeah, no, like I know that you're gonna have questions about things, but like we're just not gonna answer them. And I like that. Like it's annoying, but it's also cool. Like it's just vague, but it's it's almost like. Don't really worry about the science of it. Like, we're going to focus on the emotions. And I guess if you're like Tobin, and the emotions don't click for you, then there's not really anything to grasp onto.
2: You're right, though, that it has the strength of its convictions. And this is a thing that I do admire about Soderbergh is that he's going to make a choice. I'm going to make this movie this way. I am, not gonna, I am not at all interested in answers to these questions, except at the sort of barest plot level. I am somewhat interested in resolution, but I'm not interested in sort of guiding you through it. I'd rather guide you through the emotional experience of it, which is why I would love to see another actor in, in this role. Because you're, you're totally right. It's, it's a, a admirable in that way. And if you do feel something for it, then, it, then I bet it, it succeeds on a lot of levels.
0: I didn't also mind that there wasn't more done with those other characters. Like I was content that Clooney's character at least had an emotional resolution that I could be happy with. Like that for me was was enough. But what I did love was Viola Davis in this movie. You know, I just feel like she played scared shitless better than anybody I've seen in a really long time. And what is also interesting about that character is she's also kind of thinking the most clearly about everything that's going on. I mean, Jeremy Davies isn't human and he's like schizophrenic and insane, Clooney's grieving and re-grieving and like (laughs) re-re-grieving over all these dead versions of his wife and everything. And she's just like, we got to get the hell off of this thing and back to earth, Right. right? And that is that. And until you agree with me, don't come knocking, basically. She's great everyone in this, everyone else in this is like really great. So it could see the frustration. I mean, Clooney's great in other stuff, but he just doesn't exactly click with this totally.
1: Not that that's good, but isn't that kind of sort of maybe a point, maybe not the point, but like it's about isolation and not being able to connect and sort of he's this outsider and everything. So like, I think again, like if you're able to buy into it, you can be like, oh, well that's intentional. If you
2: don't like it, you're like, well, why doesn't this work? Sure, but I think the movie wants us to connect with him. At least when once she shows up. Otherwise, what's our tether emotionally to it? I mean, I understand he needs to be isolated from the world around him, and I get that in those opening scenes. He also he has the best therapy voice when he's calling back the person who's trying to make an appointment, like and and then through the rest of the movie, too. He he does I like what Mike said about him being uh, great as the therapist <laughs> and sort of less so in in space. Maybe it's just I wish I could see the, that version of the movie to see if it's me, or if it's him, or if it's the combination of the two of us, because as I said, I've loved him in other things, and I think he's—I I think he's a very good actor. I just, for me, he's not clicking here. I'm not like out of things to say, but I don't know because there's like. This is a strange
1: movie. There's not a ton
2: that happens. Right. No, that's exactly... That's, exa- that's a good way to say it. Especially in terms of like plot events, there are only about eight in the movie. And then there's there, there are various conversations and, and various reveals. And there, there isn't, I think, a lot a lot to say, really. I, I think that one thing that this movie does that I've talked about before is it does demonstrate how well Soderbergh shoots intimacy. You think back to the Karen Sisko Foley scene and the, with the snow falling in the background that leads to the sex scene, or you think about I like the out of focus love scene between Catherine Keener and Blair Underwood in Full Frontal. And the the there's... Well, I already forgot everything about that movie. <laughs> that part I have not forgotten. But and then and he does the same thing, especially in the flashbacks here between Natasha McElhone and George Clooney. There's a bookshop. There's a scene in a bookshop that I think is is great between the two of them, as well as their their first meeting on the train, which again starts as a dream and then turns into a flashback. And you know he does build the visually the intimacy between these two characters in different ways each time, but for my money, real believable ways each time.
1: Does her accent change in this movie? Because I know that that's the thing that they talk about at the end, where she's like, I only speak like this because this is how you remember me speaking like this. And I don't know if I maybe just didn't catch it in the beginning, but she sort of speaks with this British affectation the entire time, which is completely different than sort of like the California thing that she had on Californication. So I don't know, does her accent change or am I just not remembering the beginning of the movie right? It might have. I didn't pick up on
0: that, though. But if it did, that's a great way of like explaining away continuity errors (laughs) after watching Dailies, being like, oh, your accent slipped from scene Well,
1: scene. no, because I mean, I don't think, because if, if that happened, I don't think that it would be something, like, he would catch that. Like, I think that's something to be very intentional. Just like that thing in King of the Hill, that special feature we saw, or just like as we we're recording this five months earlier before it comes out, as you sent with that Twin Peaks diner shot where it's just completely different people, like, that's there for a reason. And so if her accent does change, and it's not like it's, sort of, like, lower-class British versus upper-class British. I, I just thought about it, like, as an American accent versus a British accent. Like, I think it'd be, like, really noticeably different. And if that's the case, then it's just because everything that we're seeing of her and hearing of her and everything that we feel about her is just the way that Clooney remembers it. So she's always on the verge of suicide, and she's got this way of speaking and this way of being. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I,
0: The way I was watching it is Solaris reads his mind when he's asleep, and the first time she appears, it's after they first met, is what he's dreaming about. And so that memory was probably crystal clear, and they were happy, and she seemed happy, but he put her in an escape pod and sent her to deep space to die <laughs> off on her own. And so the next time he's sleeping, he's dreaming about, you know, worse times in their relationships and like things were rocky. And when she reappears, she starts having those memories go even further and she starts having the rest of those memories play out. She realizes she had an abortion, Clooney wanted to leave her, and then she committed suicide. Um, so I actually very much like that theme because that's something that Soderbergh played with a lot within the limey the way like he was cutting back and forth in that movie and the memory timeline in that I almost wish he pushed it further in this. That's something I wanted to get at is even though this movie doesn't talk as much as the original with its, you know, existentialism, there's a chance to visually display stuff like that by getting real trippy with this movie with mixing up the timeline, the memory, uh, deja vu, all kinds of weirder shit could have been going on on the space station. It could have been more haunted, you know, something something to that effect. That would have maybe pushed this more in the right direction.
2: You know, it's interesting that in addition to recasting the movie, I wonder if he had another writer with him, if that would have brought anything out. You know, he's talked in the those special features about, and in the books, about not being not considering himself a writer, like writing the early movies in order to get to make the movies, but then ever since then being, uh, sort of appreciating what a writer brings to a movie that's different from what a director does and working very closely on all the scripts, but not necessarily writing them solo. And I wonder if that maybe would have changed the movie, if so- someone would have, and I don't again, I don't know exactly what they would have brought, but one other sort of, you know, shine one more, more light on this movie and and sort of, push it a tiny bit more in one direction or another, I think might have benefited it. Well, I think that's what's interesting
1: about doing Soderbergh is that like everything that we're seeing for the most part, I mean, there's always gonna be studio notes and everything like that. But like, it's sort of his vision and his handiwork across the board. in a lot of these, like he's the writer, he's the editor, he's the director, it's sort of all his thing. And so like, as I'm reading that book, I think we talked about it a couple episodes ago, he has this book, Getting Away With It, where he sort of interviews Richard Lester for a lot of the book, and then sort of has a diary about making Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy. And in the diary part, he's talking about how like, he's sort of reluctant to change Schizopolis and all this different stuff, but he's also talking about how when he made King of the Hill, he made edits and sort of... Because he wasn't sure that people were going to like it, and then he realized after the fact that, like, the edits he made weren't good. Like, they hurt the movie. And so I wonder if... I mean, I don't know what another writer would have brought to this either, but I just wonder that, like... If there's somebody else with him, like if he had like a creative partner, like I'm including as his sort of production partner, but like if he had a creative partner in all of this, I think all of his movies, like if he had somebody that was sort of like on board with his vision, but sort of lent another opinion about everything, I wonder if that would make all of his movies better or
2: worse or sort of, you know what I mean? If you think about the movies we've liked best, or I guess the ones I'd like best, Out of Sight, Ocean's Eleven, The Limey, Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, they all had other writers on them. You know, the ones he's written himself are Schizopolis, uh, Sex Lies and Videotape, the King of the Hill, Solaris, and the Underneath, right? He had nobody else with him on those on those movies. Now, I love Schizopolis and I really like Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But I, and I guess I'm just going by the fact that he has said this himself, too, that, like, sometimes he he likes to have that other mind. He likes to have that, that other take on the material that then he can interpret. And I, I just, I, I sort of... I think it's even, – even though his vision is very consistent movie to movie and that he has – clearly is in control of himself as a filmmaker. I mean, my God. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's the only writer on, on all these movies. Well, I mean, what was James
0: Cameron doing? During the production of this, was he just kind of like not really prepping Avatar, pumping money into it? <laughs> right, prepping Avatar. I mean, did he just sort of say to Soderbergh, like, you know, I've got your back. Like, just go to work, probably. and if there's any kind of financial issues, just call me. Or yeah, probably, mostly likely, yeah. right? Because
2: what's because what's what's Cameron gonna say to to
0: Soderbergh? Well, I mean, Cameron's no slouch. No. Like, he's written a lot of stuff. He hasn't directed, like, you know, like Rambo and Cobra.
2: But that's what he's written. My guess is that he takes a look at the script and says, and I have friends like this that send me a script that they've written, and, and they, are, I, they are phenomenal writers, and they write just in a completely different style. And I'm just like, holy cow, go go do this. I, I got nothing to tell you, because I'm, I, I feel out of my depth. My guess is that he just works in a different vein, right? He's, he's making an extremely minimalist version. I, I mean, this clearly was an amicable relationship, because they do the commentary together. But I, I think he, I don't know, I just think he needed somebody else at the keyboard. It's unfortunate that he wasn't,
0: you know, maybe there more more hands on or did a draft, you know, just so Soderbergh could have the option and see, oh, this is like the extreme, you know, Cameron version. And like, maybe there's a happier medium between like my completely stripped. Down like chop shop version, right? <laughs> like I mean, he, he found Solaris on the street and like you know stripped the wheels and the seats. But yeah, so like that's my only thing, I guess, is like he had. It's too bad that he had Cameron on board and that Cameron couldn't contribute to like a draft. We don't know for sure what went down, but you can kind of tell he he isn't that involved.
1: One thing that I didn't like about this was toward the end when they sort of start explaining why the visions or the ghosts or whatever are appearing on screen. Like, I kind of... I have no memory at all of the Star Wars prequels, which I know is a, a hot button of discussion between you two in terms of what you're what Tobin's sh- sort of showing his kids currently. Like, the whole mitochlorians and, like, explaining the Force and explaining all that stuff. You know, either you're, you buy into it or you absolutely hate it. I just sort of wish that they didn't explain it at all in this movie. Like, I wanted to keep the mystery, like, sort of, you know leftover style like let the mystery be like just i don't want to know why these things are here they're just here like it's a weird unexplained phenomenon and when they're like oh you know it's about like uh subatomic particles and they're doing this and they're doing that i'm like i don't care like i just want it to be like a weird spooky thing that happens which i feel like this movie is like super close to and then they're like oh right but like it's a science fiction so like let's throw some science words in there i think the
0: one cool thing about the explanation scene is at the you realize after or upon second viewing that it's like mostly jeremy davies character who's a manifestation of solaris itself explaining what solaris might be you know viola davis is like take your best guess at what it is and how we can destroy it and he does he takes a stab at it and she kind of runs with it i think that is a leftover sort of element from the original and in the book i I haven't read the book but skimming the internet it seems like that got way into sort of techno speak of the time and like you know tried to explain all the science behind everything so I just feel like it's a nod to we need say that it's not a ghost, like that it actually is existing here. We all but see it. But I this want it to be a all... ghost. I, I know. It would be cool if it was sort of trans more translucent and they could still see it or something or yeah, I agree. Like they could have that's a direction they could have expanded upon. But I do love that it's you know a part of Solaris being like, well here's what I think I
2: <laughs> Right. Or here's what you projection of this other guy might think i am or whatever like yeah it is it is interesting that way i i agree i think in these movies the less you explain the better because the explanation is never going to be as satisfying as the mystery is and i think that that's i think they're they're i think they're wise to do no more than they do and you can sort of just hum as that part happens and sort of skip that (laughs) skip that moment but you're right there's a there's a bit of a sort of star Trek next generation feeling to that scene where the where they're like babbling about what the you know thing out the window of the ship is well the the whole movie is
0: very star trek the original series like they're I mean, there are even episodes... I thought of it while watching Guardians of the Galaxy 2 with Ego, where like you have these living planets that create human avatars of themselves to go interact out into the universe and stuff. And for sure, Captain Kirk and his crew came upon
1: something like Solaris and their journeys. The only other thing I want to say about this movie is that George Clooney's character needs to learn how to chop vegetables. Because he chops so aggressively. How
0: long would it have taken him to realize that he was on Solaris or wherever, like, the afterlife.
1: Yeah, but, like, man, like, in the beginning, like, I was like, oh, God, because he's, like, I can't explain how aggressively he's chopping his cucumbers. And the fact that he only, like, sort of cuts his finger, like, that bad. Like,
2: it wasn't even bad. Like, man, learn things. In connection to that, can I I just double-check my reading of the end of this movie, since now I've finally seen it all the way to the end? Oh, I have no idea, so let's, let's go ahead. Okay, so the way I read it was that... The ending is kind of their version of Ex Machina, where, you know, she locks the real person in the thing and then releases, you know, looses herself on the world. Spoiler alert for the end of Ex Machina. Is that the same thing here where he's he sends his projection back with the ship and he stays on? Solaris, and so because the whole thing where Viola Davis is saying like we can't take them back with us, we have to kill them so we don't take them back to Earth. Because he's like, well, let's just head, head back to Earth, bring them back to Earth, see what happens. And she's like, right, study them. We can't. There. <laughs> we can't. Like if they come to Earth, then they'll, they'll everyone will fall in love with their avatar thing and will just be devoured by this. I, I took it as a malevolent <sighs> thing where he's like given himself over to this and given up the human race in order to live in this time loop with the projection of his dead wife.
0: Okay, I've got a reading that's a little different.
2: That's not how I read it.
1: If that's the case, why does he, like when he cuts his finger, why does it heal? Or is that like saying like he's on Earth when that happens?
2: The first time he cut his finger, he's on Earth. It's when the guy, it's when the, right, John Cho shows up and says, hey, we're sending you into space. When he cuts his finger the second time, it's his projection. He's part of Solaris then. He's been subsumed by the
0: planet. He's living in his own memory.
2: So then the way I saw it, which maybe that makes
1: sense, I don't know, is that he and Viola Davis can take that escape pod and last ditch effort escape from Solaris's gravitational field, whatever. But I saw like I think that he just stayed there. This is like I don't know if there actually is an answer. But the way that I saw it is that he stayed on the ship, and the ship was sort of absorbed by Solaris, and so now he's like part of his dream now. That there's no Clooney on Earth anymore. That there's just this Clooney who is now in the dream world. But
2: his visitor the visitor of himself was on the pod
1: with her. I think he got off the pod. He shuts the door.
0: Yeah, so the way I read it is pretty much sort of how Joey's read it is that he locks Viola Davis in the escape pod and shoots her off to safety alone and decides to stay on Solaris because he also, I don't know if you noticed like in the very beginning, he, there's like a kid running yeah. around, yeah. like in
1: the air ducts. Yeah. So like well, that's, he, that's the kid of the guy who kills himself.
0: Oh, I thought that was his unborn baby like I thought that he decided to stay because at the end they have like that moment it's like you know the painting of God touching man and the finger and he's touching, he's having like a fever dream and he sees this boy and he sees like three versions of his wife. And I was like, oh, so like he's experiencing like multiple realities and that is the (laughs) set that he wants. He wants the wife that had the son that grew up to be this boy. And so when he sees that he can have it, he decides to stay on Solaris forever and let it consume him and live inside his best
1: memory, sort of locked inside of his own mind. So I read the wiki for this because I was like, I don't know exactly what's going on. And I think wiki says that the kid is the kid of the general or whatever, the guy who kills himself. Because all he knows when he goes up there is that something weird is going on. He shows up too in a dream at one point. Right. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like these, it's, it's, you're thinking about the people that you've lost in your life, right? And so I think he's just so overcome by grief that at the end of the movie, he's like, "Oh no, I'm going to stay here because this is how I can be with my wife. And even if it's not real, it's real enough and I can forgive her and she can forgive me and that's all that it matters.
2: Yeah, I guess I agree with all of that except And and look, I I will need to rewatch it. Maybe I fell asleep again. I don't know. I'll need to rewatch it again, just that moment to see if he gets in the pod. I just, I had read all that, everything you're saying as what happened, except also that he's doomed Earth by doing it. But maybe that's not, maybe that's not true. I wish, I wish
0: that they made more of an allusion to that, because then, because I would have read it that this Solaris thing is sort of unintentionally malevolent. Like it doesn't exactly know what it's, doing it's just sort of reacting to humans and (laughs) making these copies and from what it seems like you will lose your mind interacting with one of these things you know sooner or later so yeah if one of these ever got back to earth it would just sort of spread like wildfire
1: across the entire planet everyone would go insane
2: right and kill themselves yeah and i think
1: that if the movie has an official stance it's that it doesn't matter that it like it doesn't matter where he is at the end it doesn't really matter what the end is because he asked Natasha McAlone, am I alive or dead now? And she says, it doesn't matter. Everything we've done is forgiven everything. And that's, like I think, the last line of the movie.
2: Yeah, but think about that line, if what he's forgiven for is destroying the human race right like I just I guess I just like my version of it better I just I, 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 I <laughs> yeah. like the idea that he is the, not only is he forgiven for running out of the room when she was gonna when she told him she'd had this abortion that sort of prompted her suicide that he's guilt over, over whatever culpability he had in her death but then also the death of the by choosing to be forgiven for that he's he's damning the whole human race I, I, I don't know I'm hoping that's what it is
0: <laughs> that's where I feel like James Cameron would have come in right like he could have like had that suggestion like that seems way up his alley of way of thinking right it's like oh, what about like we do a body snatcher thing at the end there and like you know harken back to like old sci-fi pictures put that element in because this could easily yeah it could easily have like that it does to a degree get to a level of paranoia. It doesn't stay there, but like you could see this being something like the thing in space. It isn't, but maybe that's where Cameron would have steered it a little closer to. It would have been more of a horror thing at that point, probably, but I think it calls for it.
2: And I'm hesitant to say I want to go full Cameron on the movie, but I do think that maybe since I didn't care as much about George Clooney, I don't really care whether he turns into a replica or not dare you i know you. i know but i as long as it comes back to rob more casinos but i do care about me and my family and my pe- my people on earth you know what i mean like I, I think that that produced in my mind sort of justified the rest of the movie in a, in a way but now you're telling me that i made that may be way way off and which i thought maybe I, I wasn't entirely sure so you guys are probably right and i'm probably wrong and i and i like this movie even less
1: well, I think, I think that's, again, the same thing, that like if you care about their love story, then in the end, I mean, I know that you're sort of damning all of humanity, but at the end of the movie, these two people find love, and they find happiness and acceptance
2: and forgiveness. But they don't. They don't. One person and one astral projection. But they do kind of, in a dream.
0: Or they're both astral projections at that moment, if so. I think that's what it means. I think cloning. that's what it is.
2: Yeah. True. So they're both they're both caught in this memory loop, and I'm happy for them. I just don't care.
0: Well, they're part of Solaris now, and now Solaris is them. Like They are one, so they are existing as sort of just like a consciousness at that point.
2: Except that she only had consciousness to the degree to which he re- was re- was remembering her in dreams, which makes me think that they can't go beyond what he's already dreamt. Once he becomes a visitor, he can't go back and access other memories, which is why it goes back to the beginning, which is why his earliest memory in... The, in, as, a, as a visitor is of the thing we saw in the movie. I don't think he can get back before that.
0: Which is why it's very depressing. It it seems very like, oh, this is lovely. Like, they found love in each other and everything. But then, like, you think about it longer, you're like, no, like, they're locked in this limited eternity where they have to relive the kitchen or the train or the party. They have, you know, they have to live inside only what Clooney can remember. Would you say that they found love in a hopeless place? Well,
2: even more so, again, if the rest of the world is going to be destroyed. Like, if people are going to, all everyone's going to die. Like, that's even worse. That's even worse.
0: Well, the great final shot could have been been Solaris, and then in the corner you see Earth, and it's, like, approaching. That would have been nice. Something very subtle like that.
2: Wait, very subtle like that? You mean, like, <laughs> that was a joke? Well, the trilogy. James Cameron version is, is that is the, the, the pod lands, and outsteps Clooney. It's the end of a bad, mainstream sci-fi movie. Exactly. It's, which is why I feel myself just, like, cringing at, at wanting anything like that to happen, but I guess, I guess I wanted it.
0: It can work. That's the thing. And, like, I feel like this story, like I don't feel like your reading is way off because the story doesn't, you know, there is sort of like enough to imply that possibility. You know, I feel like, yeah, like we've been discussing, you know, there is a way to take this story and make it more like body snatchers, more horror, more tradi- like turn it into more of like a traditional sci-fi movie later on, like start real heady and get into like these ideas and then by the end of it, you know, almost like adaptation, like they're running for their lives or something like, you know, they're doomed so I don't feel like that would have been you know, out of the question Did you rank this on the Soderbergh list? Yes I give it three solid stars after a second
1: viewing
2: Well, where Do you do you have all the movies ranked or no? Uh, not at this point Tobin, where'd you put it? I put it at number 10. The only ones after it for me are Grey's Anatomy, The Underneath, and Full Frontal. Uh right, Grey's Anatomy, that's number 11. The Underneath is number 12, and Full Frontal is number 13.
1: <laughs> oh, I thought you liked Okay, okay, that's fair. Oh, no, we talked about that. You had it last. I have it number seven. Yeah. Above Traffic and King of the Hill and Grey's Anatomy and Kafka. I think it's like right there in the middle. Like it's not. I don't think it's bad. I think it's of all the movies. I think it's the one most open to interpretation we've done so
2: far. I would really rather watch for sure. Traffic and King of the Hill and me and and pretty and Kafka too. I gave it two and a half stars. That's that's where I had had listed it. I, I don't. I guess I just don't care as much for this
0: movie. I really liked Kafka actually, and I I want to see Soderbergh. Like I feel like that's his only other movie with like sci-fi feel to it at, at some point especially at the end there in the third act I would love to see him take another stab at science fiction you know he doesn't need to go to space to do it he could you know do something weird on Earth or what the hell go to space do, do something out there on another planet on a colony or something but I would love to you know now that he's back out of retirement I'd like to see if he would uh, maybe do something like, like this again
1: any other thoughts on Solaris before
2: we wrap uh, nothing for me Mike
1: I mean, I
0: liked it, right? I think it's just, it's not 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's sort of like entry-level hard sci-fi, you know, for beginners. Once Joey put the idea of like this whole ghost story thing in my mind, I really wanted them to push that direction a lot more. I think the movie would have been more successful if they made it a little scarier or, you know, had more of an ominous vibe to it. I don't know if you necessarily want to go back and watch the original one if you didn't like this, but if you did like this, I'd say go back and check out the original because I watched this, then the original. and. I, I was like, oh, thank God, because like it gets really deep and, and kind of hard to follow. And, you know, I was rewinding it at certain points and rewatching sequences twice and just being like, am I getting this? And then rewatching this again, I was like, OK, yeah, like I totally understand what's happening here for the most part, at least to the degree that I get what's going on and can go off and come up with other ideas
1: for myself, answer the questions that they don't on my own. So I enjoyed it. Cool. So for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. See all the episodes that we've done. You can see all the other shows. We are now in December as this comes out which means that my and Joe 2's Magic Mics and Boyfriend material are all out. So there's lots of new things for you to listen to. Also, hopefully, if if this year is like last year, maybe Cage is going to release three or four movies in December. Who knows? The world is full of possibilities that we don't know because we're recording this in July. So enjoy things. Lots of free things at those three places. Go forth and click and listen. I'm, I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi.
2: And I am Tobin Addington.
1: And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers.